Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Picking up in verse 25 as we continue to look at marriage by design. Our uh, long walk through uh, and look at marriage from Ephesians chapter 5. I usually try to give you some little bit of information, kind of some insider things. Sometimes it's hard things going to the life of the church. Sometimes it's really fun things. Hey, I just want to say, a couple weeks ago, we got, you know, we got to uh, point out folks who've been uh, teachers of the year in our area. I think something that I think is really cool is last week, Blake over here, just before he turned 91 years old, got to preach the gospel from a pulpit. That's pretty cool. Um, Man, if I'm still doing this at 91, I might be, ma- I might be mad. Um, <laughs> I had a grandmother who after 80 was just all, she was always annoyed that she was still alive. She actually had to tell us that, um, she said we had to stop getting pregnant with babies because she was sick and tired of having a reason to live. <laughs> but you have a great reason to live, and that is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And, uh, that is, that is, and you do it so well and so beautifully. All right, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 31 is where we're going to be this morning. So we've been looking at, at uh, the role of wives and husbands as we play out our part in the drama of the gospel. That is what we, marriage is. It is a, uh, you could think of it as your, your own personal high school uh, musical. And the musical is the, playing to the rhythm of the gospel. where We get to play aspects of the good news of Jesus Christ so that the world can see it. That's what our marriage is supposed to be. It says this, picking up in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holding him without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Praise be to the Lord. All right, last week we looked at this call upon men to follow the screenplay set by Christ Jesus, that Jesus has given us um, the prototype of what it looks like to love our wives, and that we saw that men, a man is our call, we have two points that we looked at last week. First, that men are called to headship, the role of headship, and that is the position from which husbands love. But then we also saw that we are given that position, and the main act that we are supposed to carry out in that position is sacrifice, and that is the posture from which a husband loves. So the position is headship, but then he takes a posture of lowliness, of service, of sacrifice. Well, I said last week that we are kind of, that was only the beginning, this was a two-part sermon, and so this is, we're looking this morning at the second part. So we might say this is the third point uh, we're going to look at this week. It's going to be its own sermon in and of itself that we're going to break down. And so now we're going to look at this aspect, the third aspect of what Jesus calls us to, but we as following Christ is ministry. Ministry, and that is the purpose for which a husband loves. 
And I might also add this. While this is part two of the conversation to husbands, I think it could also be part two to the wives as well. The calls today, I will primarily be speaking to husbands, but I don't think that they are necessarily only to him. I believe that women can apply these, wives can apply these in their relationship to their spouse as well. So ministry. Ministry, that is the purpose for which the husband loves. Now, there there is ever a word that the church likes to throw around. It's the word ministry, right? We ask, am I called to the ministry? And we use phrases like, I just want to minister to them. Or that that is the minister over there. Or do you have a Harley Davidson ministry like one church in my area growing up had? Don't you wish we had that? Now, it's the most basic definition. By the way, that reminds me. I was supposed to make an announcement about youth ministry. And that is that uh, they have a trunk or treat uh, tonight for just the youth, because no youth want their three-year-olds coming to a trunk or treat with them. So it's just for the youth, not youth and families, but just want to let you know that, remind everybody, all you youth, that we come to the youth ministry, the student ministry tonight. So we throw around this word ministry. Now it's most basic definition. What do we mean by that word? It actually means, and it's very plainly, it simply means to give aid or service. Ministry is to give aid or service to help another along. Verses 25 to 26, the transition there, it says, Christ gave himself up for his bride. And then it says this, in order that. In other words, Christ's sacrifice was not just a sacrifice into the ether. There was a direction to his sacrifice. There was a specific purpose for it, and that is to see his bride sanctified. And so if I could put it as plainly and clearly as I can this morning, it's this. Marriage is ministry. All you husbands in the room, you have been called to the ministry. You, in fact, you run a marriage ministry. A whole marriage ministry. You run it. You had no idea, did you? You started one. One day, 12 years ago, three years ago, 45 years ago, now your marriage may only have one person who attends, and that's probably a good thing. Only one person reads your books and attends your conferences, but it is a gospel ministry that is profoundly important and significant in this world. Remember, it is a display of the good news of Jesus, and that means it's far more significant than anything Windshape throws out there, as great as those marriages conferences are, or Family Life Weekends that crusade puts on. You are actually ministering and displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so men, your love has a purpose. When you sacrifice and you lay down your life, it is for a reason. It is for your wife. She is your ministry. So if you're starting a marriage ministry, if I were to start a church, if I start a new ministry, well, if you're, you know, you, it's an organization. We gotta do some things. We wanna have some direction. And even in the ministry world, we have books about like vision, mission, and values. And so this morning, we're going to look at the vision, mission, and values of your marriage ministry. So we'll start with the vision. The vision for marriage ministry. We see that our marriage is a metaphor for Christ's love for the church. His is not the metaphor for our marriages. Our marriages are a metaphor for his. We are the shadow. He is the reality. His Christ, his love for, for his bride. And Christ, when he loves his church, he does so in order that, what does it say? He might sanctify her. And so that he might make her radiant and beautiful in his sight. This is the vision that Jesus has for his church. That one day he would present her to himself as his reward. Let me give you a glimpse of this by just reading this really briefly, what I wrote this week. 
This is the glimpse into all things, at the end of all things, that one day our groom will return and he will bring the new heavens and the new earth. And on that day there will be a wedding. And that wedding setting will be fantastic. At the entrance of the sanctuary will flow out a river from the very sanctuary itself. And that river will flow out and then under a glorious and profound and beautiful tree full of life. And it will continue perpetually through the new Jerusalem. But at the other end of that sanctuary, at the very front of it, will stand Jesus the King. And flowing from this king is the train of his robe that leads to the very entrance of the sanctuary and his robe will become that river that will flow out of the sanctuary. But there standing at the entrance of the sanctuary, at the very end of his robe, will stand the bride. She's called the church, the bride of Christ. And she will be radiant and she will be brilliant. She will stand without blemish. No more infighting on her person. No more consumerism will be allotted, no more injustice in her bones, no selfish pride upon her face, not one blemish, and she will stand there radiant and glorious, shining like the stars in the sky and the sun above. And all the hosts of the heavens, the angels, will stand there aghast, utterly stunned at the beauty of this bride. The angels of heaven did not know the story of how the groom, that he was the one who washed and purified this bride. If they did not know the story that this bride only merely reflects the radiance of the groom himself, they would be tempted to bow down and worship this bride because she is so beautiful. And on that day, the bride will walk up the train of the groom's robe and stand before her groom. And the groom, with tears in his eyes and with shining delight, will look upon his bride and say, My beloved. My beloved, that is the end point of all of history. That is where it's going. That day is coming, praise be to God. And that day is coming because even now, Christ is doing something in his bride. He's making us pure. He is sanctifying us. He is doing the work of cleansing her, of making her new, of purifying her from her sinfulness. And he is forming her into a sight to behold. You see, Christ is a vision for his bride. And when he came to earth to buy back his bride, to ransom her back to himself, during that time, each day, he envisioned the day that he would marry her fully and finally. On the day that Jesus saved one wedding by turning water into wine, he envisioned on that day when he would drink and feast with his new bride. On the day that Jesus shared the parable and inviting those from the highways and the byways, the lost and the impoverished and the outsider, into his great wedding feast, as he told that story, he envisioned that day. On the day that Christ walked an aisle himself through a sea of people on both sides that were not worshiping but were jeering, where he bore a cross on his back, it was that wedding day that he envisioned. And so your marriage is a metaphor of that marriage, that you minister to your bride with an eye to the day when you will see her in all of her glory. In other words, the vision that we have, if you're going to start a marriage ministry, you need a vision of not what your bride will look like when she comes down the aisle. She's far more beautiful than the bride that Jesus got. But the bride, the radiance of her beauty at the end of all things, that when Christ fully sanctifies her and your wife is her future glory self. To fall in love with somebody is to imagine yourself being there on that day, the day in which we're all caught up into heaven, 
and you see your bride in all of her glory, in all of her radiance, and you say, I always knew you could look like that. I always saw it in you. And they see the beautiful work that God is doing in that woman's life, and they say, I want in on that. I want to be a part of that. I want to be part of what God is forming in her and through her. And by the way, wives feeling the same way about their husbands. And this view of marriage as ministry, a ministry that finds hope and energy in this vision of what our spouse will become, we need that vision because there's some days when they don't look like that future vision, do they? When your spouse is not easy to love and care for, for husbands to care for their wife when they are being difficult and vice versa for wives to care for their husbands when they are far, far from anything beautiful. You see, here is a reality in marriage. Marriage reveals us, doesn't it? Adam and Eve are naked and ashamed, but then the fall happens, they immediately have to what? Cover up. But marriage is an unclothing. And when you become a Christian, for example, Jesus comes, you get to know more and more of the beauty and the holiness of God, and what does that make you feel about yourself? You begin to realize how unholy you are. His holiness exposes our lack thereof. His faithfulness exposes our unfaithfulness. The beauty of his love exposes our lukewarmness, lukewarm love towards him. The sanctification process, that beautifying process that Christ does to his bride, the church, is a process that involves us seeing that we are not that beautiful to begin with. And so it is in our earthly marriages. Marriage exposes us, and in that exposing, it reveals the cracks and the fissures in our character, in our person. It reveals the parts of us that we had carefully crafted great disguises to kept hidden, that, or for sometimes that we didn't even know those cracks and fissures were there. Catherine Ann Porter, who was a famous journalist in the early part of the late, late part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th century, she was married four times, so she knew the pain of marriage. But she said this, marriage is the merciless revealer, the great white searchlight upon the darkest reaches of the human heart. There are parts of you that you never knew were that lost and that fallen and that broken until you got married and, uh-oh, I didn't realize that could come out of me. But when Christ saw the worst parts of us, did he run? No. He said, I'm going nowhere. And instead, he comes running to cleanse, to wash, and to purify. And so Jesus goes nowhere because he has a vision of what we will be like, not today, but tomorrow, on that great and final day. You see, Jesus married himself not because we were lovely. This is unlike our marriages. We marry someone because we think they're lovely, and they're beautiful. We were not lovely, but he married us to make us lovely. And there is a sense that marriage is not a human invention that is there to make us happy. It is God's invention to make us holy and radiant. So if mar- but if marriage is about self-fulfillment and self-gratification, when it gets hard, when we realize and we see those cracks and fissures in our spouse, those aspects of their character that are no good, what do we, we want to cut and run if it's all about me and about my self-fulfillment. Most people believe that when they get married, that man, they look at those problems they see in somebody else and they go, you know what, I think I should have married somebody better. Now, you may not express that out loud if you want to live, but, you don't, but that's what you think. I should have married somebody else and you want to run. You say, I don't want this. But this is where the authentic Christian marriage is distinct. When the exposure of marriage happens and the cracks on your spouse's character are exposed, the Christian husband and the Christian wife envisions to being married to someone better. 
But that someone better is still the same person they share a bed with. It is the future glory self of that better person. To see the cracks and they don't run away, instead they run toward. And they say, I want you. I want the holy you. I want the radiant and splendid you. And so if it's going to take a lifetime to get you there, I'll stay. And I'll be a part of however God wants to use me to be a part of your glorification. You have a glory glimpse of the radiant spouse of what they could be and will be in Jesus. And you say, I want to stick it out because I want part of that. This will sustain you on the day that you realize that your spouse is not who you thought you married. When they have weaknesses and warts and wounds that cause deep distress for you. Now this process of change has an eternal vision, right? This is the end of all things. That means, let's shape some expectations, husbands and wives. This is going to take a minute. That we, our spouses don't get over addictions in a week. And the woundedness of their past is not healed immediately. It's a lifelong process, which is why God has made marriage a lifelong covenant. Because it's going to take a whole life. And that's why we need a vision at the very end. That's why there's a covenant. So that at the very end we could say, man, there were some dark days in there. But at the very end when you see the glory of who our spouse was made to be, we'd say, I always knew, I always knew. It could be there. Marriage ministry requires a vision for your spouse to see their future glory self. And so the beauty of marriage is that someone would look at you, look at the bottom of who you are, all that is good and bad in you, and they would see you not just for who you are today, but who you're becoming. They see a vision of who you can be, and they say, I want in on that. Now, the sacrifice is towards this vision, and that sacrifice is towards that vision, but that sacrifice has some tasks, a mission the day in and day out. Things that you are called to do as spouses for the other. If you're going to minister, your marriage ministry needs some specific tasks, a specific mission within it. And so let's look at the mission of marriage ministry. It says this in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. This is the practicalities of what Christ does. His sacrifice is towards that vision... But in the day in and day out, his goal is to nourish and to cherish his bride until she becomes that beautiful vision. Now, this is really important because while you can have a vision of a sanctified spouse, it doesn't call you as husbands and wives to sanctify your spouse because we don't have the power to do that. Remember, we are merely the metaphor in the shadow. Only the perfect spouse has the ability to sanctify us. All right? You can't change your spouse. And this helps combat a temptation to misuse a call to form a vision of your sanctified spouse. Because some of us, we go, oh, I have a vision for what my beautified spouse would look like. They get up off the couch and they help me with the kids. They do the dishes. They listen. They're emotionally in tune with my needs. Right? And that vision of a spouse is someone who simply meets your needs today. And you form a vision of someone who is the perfect spouse as opposed to maybe to you as opposed to God's vision for them. And you think, well, my ministry to them would be to help them towards that, my vision of their, of their perfection. And so what do you do? What's the main way? What's, what are the ways in which we try to sanctify people? We love to criticize and we go, that's dirty right there. That's, that's, that's ugly. Is this very helpful in helping people change? 
We try to criticize people in the radiance. It doesn't work. And you can try to poke and you try to control and you can try to prod your spouse to holiness. You don't have that ability. And in fact, not only is that you don't have that ability, it's actually a manipulative ministry. Larry Crabb talks about it this way. He says, whenever the goal of our behavior is essentially to change the other person as opposed to nourish and cherish them, whether the change is good or bad, we are the ones who are wrong. Whenever the goal is to change the other person, we are wrong because we are using it for manipulation, not ministry. But I have good news for you. You don't have the power to change your spouse. That's God's job. What a relief. You can lay down that burden. You don't have to change that, and guess what? You can't. So let God do that. You can't sanctify them. You don't have that ability. But here's the thing. We can participate in what God is doing. We can be his means of nourishing and cherishing them. We can come alongside our spouse to provide a context in which healing and sanctification can happen. Your job as a husband is to nourish and to cherish your wife. If you can think of the image of a gardener. A gardener can't make the flowers grow, can he? Now, only, only God can make the corn grow and the flowers flourish, but he can plant, and he can water, and he can weed, and he can care for the garden. So nourish and cherish, what do these words mean? Nourish, really quickly, it means to develop, to nurture, to lift up. And literally, in the old King James, it says to bring to maturity. I, like, I think it has the, the image of provision, right? When you think of your kid, I'm going to provide for them the, the, the food that they need so that they can grow healthy bones and get fat on their skin, right? Become something strong. This is the image of feeding. And so a husband provides what is needed so his wife can grow spiritually, fostering her relationship in the Lord. Yes, and you can provide the food. You can't make her eat. But you can provide the context. By your prayer life and your patience and your meditation on God's word, your integrity, your commitment to come to church, your care for the family, your love, your forgiveness, a husband can foster in his wife personal and spiritual growth. And by the way, the spouse, the wife can do the same for her husband. And not only spiritually, but a husband should encourage his wife to develop her gifts and talents to maximize her glory to God. The husband who's nourishing and cherishing his wife, his wife blossoms over the course of married life. She doesn't wilt because her gifts become more and more fully discovered and encouraged. Her voice in the marriage becomes louder because it is encouraged. He longs for her counsel and she becomes more confident and more holy in that counsel. She grows in ability and skills because her husband actively encourages the use of the gifts God has given her. The husband stimulates and incites those things in his wife. He wants them. The nourishing husband also knows where his wife is not just strong, but also where, he is weak, where she is weak. Does she need emotional nourishment, physical health, relational joy? Where does she need care? But her weaknesses, the cracks in who she is and in her life, make the nourishing husband say, I'm running to that spot to provide care. I'm not running away. And so she is nourished, but she's also cherished. The word cherish goes even more deeply emotionally because this word means to comfort, to warm, to soften as by heat. So she feels special and unique. You esteem her. You hold her above all others. There is none like her. You prize her and you praise her. You want to see a good example of this? Go sit at Ed Hogan's back porch and you'll hear someone who prizes and praises and esteems his wife. The person who cherishes his wife, she knows she is cherished. 
She doesn't have to question it. She knows she is delighted in it. And then, men, this is so important. Men, while we struggle with a sense of inadequacy to get the job done, a core lie of self-doubt that runs through <laughs> the women is the, the sense that they lack desirability. Am I pleasing? Am I the one he dreamed of and longed for? We love me to the end. Am I safe with this man that I've married? Will he cast me off? Even if we go the distance, will he just put up with me? Will he grow tired of me? Therefore, a wise and cherishing husband will spend his life communicating to his wife, you are the one for me. Emphasis on one. You are the one I delight in. I praise God for you. You please me. The thought of living life without you is horrible to me. I want to grow with you and I want to be with you my whole life. Even when a husband there recognizes his wife's weaknesses, that's the, what he, the things he says. Oh, there's something about you that you found wanting? Ah, I'm here to cover over you and to say I'm going nowhere. Now, do you want to take a guess of what might undercut a wife's sense of being cherished and delighted in? Want to see what it looks like? Here's a picture of it. You've seen this picture before. That's the funny version but its damage is significant. Men, pornography and wandering eyes, this is what it attacks. Is it removes from your wife a sense that she is a cherished one in your eyes. That your eyes are for her and for her alone. You don't seek to be entertained by the exploits of someone else. Does your wife know that you have eyes for her and no one else? That's a wife who is cherished. So men, you cherish your wife and you nourish your wife. But here's where I want to highlight. You can move on. This is going to be distracting. Um, <laughs> but here's where I want to highlight what we might call specifically a spiritual care. In the proto-marriage, the great marriage between Christ and the church, Christ nourishes his bride. What does it say? By washing her with the water and with the word. Water refers to baptism. It's a reminder of our identity and our standing before God of who you are. And the word speaks the truth about her relationship to God. So, you're a nourisher. And so what is the primary thing? Men always are wanting to know, what does it look like for me to be a spiritual leader? I don't necessarily think it means that you have to lead your wife in devotions every night. Actually, I think it doesn't mean that. But what it means is this, is that you feed your wife's sense of Christ's love for her. That this is your identity. This is who you are. You belong to God. We all have days where we find it hard to believe that God really loves us. And if we struggle with that, so too does the person we share a bed with. Man, we can't make our wives secure in the Lord. You can't do that. You can't ultimately put her in a place of secure standing. Only Jesus can make our spouse fully and ultimately secure. But we can be the means of helping our spouse feel secure, experience security. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. The image one writer uses is this. The situation is like unto this. It is much like another man who discovers that there is oil under my property. He does not make me wealthy. I possess the riches before he found the oil. The oil was mine. But it was not until he made me aware of the oil that I could experience my wealth. Husbands and wives, this is what we do for one another. You can't make somebody ultimately rich in Christ Jesus. Only Jesus can give those riches, but you can remind them every day. Ah, this riches, these riches are yours in him. 
In the same way, husbands do not make wives secure and wives do not make husbands significant, but husbands and wives can do much to convince their spouses of the riches they have in Christ Jesus. You can provide a deep and existential awareness of what it looks like and feels like to be loved. Your imitation for your wife can make Jesus' love tangible to her. You can make it real to her. And so the call to a husband is this, to live with your wife in such a way that she never has a hard time believing that Christ loves her. The great John Bunyan exhorted husbands to be a believing husband to a believing wife, and he says that this is the way a wife should feel, that she should feel this way, that God has not only given me a husband, but he has given me a husband that preaches to me every day the way of Christ to his church. She's saying my husband reminds me that Jesus loves me. And in this, hear this, in this I want you to see that marriage has incredible healing power. You see, some of you enter into marriage with deep and profound brokenness, and it hurts from your family of origin, from past relationship, and abuses. We are all painfully aware of the destructive power of marriage, aren't we? When a marriage goes bad, it can destroy you. But just as it has the power to destroy you, it has the power to heal you as well. That The Spirit of God has imbued marriage, this relationship, with incredible power in your life. And a power to heal you, to heal you from the lies You see, we all have tapes. You know the internal tapes that we play? The evil one begins to weave them and record them in your mind from the earliest of age. From the moment that you were in your mother's womb and sitting at her chest, all through your teenage years, he is weaving tapes, and they are the accumulated verdicts that have been passed on you over a lifetime. And their verdicts have voices like this, you'll never amount to anything. You'll never be good enough. You aren't capable. You are not lovely. You are not secure. But your spouse has an unrivaled ability in this world by the Spirit to override those tapes. For their voice to be the voice of the Holy Spirit to you, to speak to you and say, let me remind you who you are. Let me show you who you are with my love for you. And so husbands may it be that our wives being nourished and cherished by us would be able to say, through my husband, I get a taste of Christ's love for me. Oh, it was just very a tiny taste. (laughs) It was a very, very dim reflection. Sometimes we weren't sure it was there. But I got glimpses of Christ's love for me. Well, the last key point for the development of your marriage ministry is that it has to be your priority. It has to be your priority. The priority of marriage ministry. Marriage is to be the priority ministry of your life. You're going to have many areas where you get to serve and aid people. This is number one. If you're married, in fact, Paul says, I believe he makes this evident in another place. In 1 Corinthians 7, 7, he says this. He essentially says, I wish everyone was single like me so that you could devote yourself to the ministry that I have. But then he says this, but each has his own gift from God. In other words, we each have our own ministry. He said, my primary ministry is to plant churches and to raise up elders. That's a great ministry. But for you that are married, you have a more significant one for your life. You have a more primary one for your life. Paul said, if you get married, there are a lot of ministry opportunities and kingdom vocations you are not going to be able to do. Because you have a kingdom calling already. It's called marriage. And this is your primary calling. Now, there are things, very, very good things... It's usually good things that will distract us from the primary calling of marriage. 
Let me give you just a few. The most primary one, I think, is the one seen in the text. Not to say your whole life, but it's the one that's mentioned there. Verse 31, what does it say? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. We call this leaving and cleaving. It's called get out of your mama's house and her basements. You can fail to make your spouse a priority by failing to leave your family of origin. And there are some obvious ways you can fail to leave your parents. You can be emotionally dependent on your parents' opinions. Yes, honor your parents, but never, never above your spouse. Do not confide in your parents in ways you do not confide in your spouse. That destroys your spouse's trust. Husbands, your wife needs to know that when it comes to your wife and your mom, your wife wins 100 times out of 100. And wives, vice versa. You know, we ain't going to call daddy to do everything. We're not just going to listen to daddy's advice. Parents, you need to know this, of those of you who are getting ready to have kids get married, or that you have children that are married, you need to know it comes to your child's spouse versus you, you will always lose and you need to be okay with that. And that is the way that God has created things. Her illustration one of a mother on the wedding day. She gave um, her new daughter-in-law a box. And she asked her to open it in front of everybody. Maybe this is the rehearsal dinner the night before the wedding. And she asked her new daughter-in-law to open it. And there it was uh, the mother-in-law's old kitchen apron. And she took that kitchen apron. And there were scissors in the box as well. And so the mother-in-law took the kitchen apron. And she cut this, the... The, uh, the strings off of it. And she said this, he's yours. He's yours. You can be psychologically still dependent on your parents. That means you have not left because you're still locked into the old family patterns. Why do you do it that way? Why do you have those traditions? Well, it's the way my family did it. Leave and cleave. Make your own traditions. Listen, the holidays are about to come up, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas, this is one of those times in which we create a lot of this around family dynamics, all right? Husbands and wives, you don't have to go home. Mama's cooking is good. You have a new home. So you do not choose her. You do not choose your, your mom and your dad over her. And you don't choose your parents over him. This doesn't mean you don't visit people and go see them. But listen. She wins. She wins. If you have a new home, you have leaved and you have cleaved. You are one flesh. Some of you are still psychologically dependent on your parents even though you hate them. And you never see them, but they are wreaking havoc in your life because you despise your parents. You still hate and you harbor bitterness against them. And you say, we are not going to do it that way because that's the way my parents did it. You're still living in the shadow of your parents. And they have way too much power over you. So that's one way. Love your parents. Honor them. No. But do not. Do not go running home. Second, your children. Real, real briefly. Listen, the relationship between the parent and child is critical. It is beautiful. We're going to deal with it in Ephesians at some point. But God didn't put a parent and child in the garden, did he? He put a husband and a wife. When one wounded person marries another, inevitably, you start to look at your kids sometimes as your primary source of nurture. <laughs> but let me tell you, that is bad for you, and children make terrible gods. <laughs> now, they act like gods. They act like, you know, tyrants. But this is a disaster for you, and by the way, it's a disaster even more for them. 
Some of the reason why so many of you are so bitter at your parents is because you were this role in your household. You were the one who was supposed to nurture your parents. You're, they were supposed to, this relationship is more important but, than their relationship with their spouse. But your marriage matters first. It has primary responsibility. When the air masks drop in the plane, you put it on you first, then on them. And by the way, the stats show this. One of the best ways in which a child can grow up and be secure is to see and know that mom and dad love each other and they aren't going anywhere. That's how you love your kid, by loving your spouse. Third, your other kingdom vocations can get in the way. Some of you are having an affair with your career and you need to cut it off and you need to literally go home or leave whatever room you hide out in to do your work. Your work gets your best. Other people get your time and your energy more than your spouse. Listen, it's great to have a ministry. It's great to have a ministry. But here's what I'd say. You are one flesh. Therefore, if you decide to take a new role and it's going to demand more, it may be great, you have more money, but you should make that decision with your spouse. Is this our ministry calling? Or am I running off and running my own fiefdoms without you? Do I have her permission and her blessing to go do this? Does he have my, do I have his permission and blessing to go give my life, in this portion of my life, to this? We make those decisions together. Marriage is to be the ministry priority of your life. Now, the single-minded focus, it actually ought to thrill you. Think of it this way. Think of this high and holy calling. The so sovereign God has chosen you. That from the billions of men on this planet, he has uniquely chosen you to minister uniquely in one other person's life. And thereby making an eternal difference and casting before the world a beautiful picture of Christ's love for the church. The sovereign God has called you to this. Be single-minded. So ask yourself this question, does my life demonstrate to my spouse that she is the priority of my life? How do I know? Well, you could ask her. That would be a swell idea. Hey, do you feel prioritized by me? She just might. If you're safe, she just might tell you if you dare ask. Or perhaps she's been telling you, but you've not been listening. She could tell you, or men, you know what we could do? We could also just look at our wives. We could look at her life and we could ask this question. Does her life, does her health demonstrate that she is the priority and that she has been the focus of my nourishment and care? Some of you may still remember the name Bill McCartney. You have to be kind of a, maybe over 30 at least, maybe 35 to remember his name. Some of you, he, he was the founder of a ministry called Promise Keepers, a profound movement in the uh, early 90s that called men to take up their roles and to commit to their promises as husbands and fathers and peacemakers and restorers in this world. But before he did that, he was famous as the head coach of the Colorado Buffalo football team. This goes way back. For some of you, you almost no one will remember this. The Colorado football Buffalo team, they were good. Not anymore. But in 1990, he actually won the national championship. They were in the title hunt year in and year out. And McCartney was at the pinnacle of a dream career when something happened. 
the midst of running this beautiful, wonderful ministry and leading a profound, awesome Division I football team to national prominence, a pastor named Jack Taylor filled the pulpit at his home church in Boulder, Colorado. Jack Taylor said this, I can tell a great deal about a man's character by looking at the countenance of his wife. Now we could debate how true that is, but Coach McCarty said he, had never, he never heard another word that preacher said. Instead, he turned and looked at his wife, and he saw in her face a woman who had been drained of her joy and vitality and splendor by a husband who expected her always to follow him in his dreams and his ambitions. You see, while he was giving so much of his time to to his dreams and ambitions to his football team and then to promise keepers, his wife fell into the midst of a crippling depression. She lost 80 pounds. She would later say this, The more famous my husband became, the smaller I got. And so what did Bill McCartney do? To the shock of the evangelical Christian world and to the football world, he quit. And he quit cold turkey. No more promise keepers, no more football coaching. He said that he realized that he was called, what he was called to do was to restore the splendor to his wife's face. To make her once again the priority of his life. Men, is your wife your priority? Is she your highest calling in this world? Now, don't get me wrong. This is a hard calling. This is a hard task. To do all the other things that God may have called you to do as well, but to hold this one as preeminent and to to love and care. Wouldn't it be great if wives, when called to be fearless helpers for their husbands, giving life to them and empowering them, wouldn't it be great if she was able to do that simply out of the energy provided by her husband's encouragement and delight in her? That she was so filled up that she could love her and and care for her husband so well because of his energy into her? Or wouldn't it be great if husbands, when called to give their lives, to lay down their desires, their priorities, sometimes their careers, to nourish and care for their wives so that she would know that she is delighted in? Wouldn't it be great if he could do that simply because she was the one who put wind under his wings and empowered him? Wouldn't that be great? But that's not the way it is, is it? We must remember that while we are all well-fit and well-positioned to minister to our spouses, our marriages are still only a metaphor. And you can't suck that much life out of a metaphor. Meaning we cannot expect our spouse to meet our most deepest personal needs. And you have to be reminded of that every day. I have spouses sometimes, our husbands, brides and grooms do this. I I I have them look at each other and say, you are not enough for me. Unless you know that, unless you need that, need that, and by need that, I don't mean N-E-E-D, I mean need it with a K. Need it into your marriage, then you will tragically grow in resentment against your spouse. Because when you're not happy, you'll resent your spouse. You'll resent your spouse for being something they could never be, your savior. We ask, what about my needs? What about my priorities? If I'm not being filled up by my spouse, how can I serve them and minister them in the way I need to? Listen, your deepest needs for security and significance can only ultimately be met in Christ Jesus. And I want you to see this as we close. Your groom has made you such a priority. So profound, it actually strikes us as heresy. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says this, Jesus is going to the cross looking to the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before Jesus? 
You say, communion with God the Father. No. He'd already had that from all of eternity. He already had perfect union with God the Father. The only thing that God did not have when Christ went to the cross was his runaway bride. We are the joy set before him. Do you see the way in which Christ prioritized you? It's only when you experience that, when you see that, his love, and you run to him for that nourishment and that care and that cherishing and that delight where you hear his voice of you, then you will be free and you'll be filled up to minister to your spouse in the way Ephesians 5 calls you to. Let's pray to that nourishing God. Heavenly Father, we need your help for this task. Some of us are married to spouses that are not so beautiful. And by that I mean all of us. In which we have discovered things about them that is very, very difficult to love. And it exhausts us. And it sucks the life out of us at times, it seems. So Heavenly Father, I pray that husbands and wives in this room would repent of seeking to suck the life out of their spouse and instead go to the well, that they would go to the spring in Christ Jesus, that when they are, they are frustrated that their spouse is not giving them the attention that they feel like they deserve, and they, they do, they, they should receive, but they don't get it, would they run to you? Would they run to the one who is the satisfier and the filler of souls? Jesus, lover of my soul, come and fill me up, we pray. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.